Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. I'm so happy to have my next guest, who is Reinhard Stelzer. Welcome, Reinhard. I'm glad to have you on the show. And I'm delighted that you have accepted my invitation. Thank you very much. I'm pleased. I like to say that you are the professor of coaching psychology at the University of Copenhagen. And this is the moment where I would like to give you the word that will you give us a quick introduction of yourself? Probably one thing is that I'm German. I have lived in Denmark since 84. I work mm-hmm. at the university for more than 30 years. My job has, of course, developed quite a bit. So I don't do the same stuff uh, than I did in 87 when I started. I have a background also in psychotherapy and a PhD in psychology. I'm doing research and teaching, and I'm doing coaching. So you do it from all the angles. Yeah. And I also work as a mentor. As a mentor? Oh. Yeah. Then you have an insight into all of the aspects of coaching and coaching development. And I think I'm not telling a secret that uh, that's one of the reasons why I've invited you to this conversation. Wow. That's really a lot. And I immediately got one question that you said that your job has changed in the university. And what was the change that you have welcomed the most in these changes? It's, it's actually my journey towards coaching because it's somehow accidental in some sense. One of my areas is also sports psychology. wrote a handbook in Danish uh, sports psychology and the director of publishing house, the Danish psychological publisher, asked me whether I could write a book which was more for practitioners. I think he had an idea it would be something like mental training or so more for sports people. And I said, oh, I'm not so much interested in that. And there was also just published another book from a Norwegian colleague on the topic. I said to him, I will return. Uh, So I had to think about it. And I actually started to teach in the area of coaching at the university. I had really no really clue how coaching would look like in my understanding in the first place. So, But I had two basic theoretical foundations. One was uh, theories on uh, identity. It was actually an area where I wrote my PhD and uh, new learning theories. So that was actually the the theoretical foundation for my work. So then I returned and I asked some other colleagues, started to work in the area of coaching to publish a book. And this was my only bestseller. (laughs) It was more than four, 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 you know, Denmark has only less than six million people. The book has, I think, altogether about 25 copies sold. 
and a book edition from Book Club with uh, 3,000 copies just in one print. I mean, this is really a big shot uh, in that mm -hmm. sense. It's still selling, and the book is from 2002. So it's more than 20 years old. That's uh, quite amazing. And then my journey started. And a couple of years later, since 2009, I also teach on, at uh, Copenhagen Business School. My main work is as a department of sport and exercise and nutrition, actually. And uh, I also work as a, a visiting professor at Copenhagen Business School, where I teach for the last 14 years. Uh, leaders in public uh, enterprises. So it could be headmasters of uh, high schools, uh, people from the government offices, police, military, a lot of people from the health sector, doctors, head nurses, and uh, all these. So and this is actually how I came to further develop my understanding of professional dialogues, I would say, to broaden the perspective on, on coaching also a bit. And I really like that you use the, the word professional dialogue because that's uh, what I'm hearing is that you were carefully not saying coaching in the first place, but you were saying professional dialogue, which implies for me a much broader understanding of, of what we are talking about, yeah. helping professionals. Now, what is really interesting for me, the the diversity of your background. So you mentioned sports and exercise psychology or sports and exercise and even nutrition as one of main areas. And you, then you mentioned identity theory as a basis for your understanding. As If I take a look at these two fields, well, they do seem to be very far-fetched from each other. Do you put these together? Yeah, sometimes I also struggle a bit. But I think there is a closer connection than you think because identity is actually, it took me, one and a half years before I really started my PhD to find a topic which was really something important from my perspective. And I think identity issues is one of the most important topics in the area of uh, psychology, which you relate to the changes in society. Because if you think about how the concept of identity uh, and self understanding has changed then from during the last 50 years i mean mm -hmm. if we go 50 years back we after world war ii the period uh, 50s 60s beginning of 70s we got our identity by birth more or less through our family background and it was a clear continuum of the development. And I think the first change came through the revolution, through a growing uh, educational focus, which actually happened in the U.S. after the Soviet Union had their Sputnik around the earth. And the U.S. became aware, oh, we are also in competition in regard to education. So this started an educational revolution and it came maybe later to Europe. This brought some new perspectives to the whole understanding of identity because you could say the German sociologist Ulrich Beck described it with an elevator effect. The whole society moved somehow a bit upwards, but they lost their identity in relation to their social background to their class identity. And suddenly there was a, you had to work towards your identity. And this development grew even further 
since we have social media. And I think it's somehow dreadful a lot of young people who are very, I mean, it has always been a, the age, the time between maybe age 13 to beginning of the 20s has always been a difficult time for young people. Now, through uh, social media, these young kids and young adults have to work on their identity. Identity becomes actually quite kind of performative act. In that way, you can see if in this being a performer, then they have a better chance to develop an identity they are satisfied with. If you are not so good at it, you have a very yeah, broken identity, undifferent, unclear identity uh, and self-concept. Uh, and here, uh, of course, if we speak about uh, dialogue, which I actually I prefer coaching as a transformative dialogue, so I talk about transformative dialogues, mm -hmm. then we could say the transformation is actually when people see I'm not really satisfied what I'm doing, how I am, how I understand myself, and so on. So it's actually these transformative dialogues and transformation means that you actually become something slightly different. You understand yourself in a slightly different way. In that sense, coaching is a transformative dialogue towards a redefinition of your identity. That's fascinating because how I understand it is that in your approach or in your understanding, coaching is an identity forming act. We are supporting them in becoming better performers. Let, let me use this word in expressing their, themselves or in doing themselves, which then feeds back to their own identity, to their life that they are they are living or that they are experiencing for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I struggle that we become better performers uh, because this is actually not my idea. We are forced to perform through mm. social media, for example, or in, in our everyday life. We perform through our clothing, through our way of consuming things, so our way of uh, eating, our way of seeing different films. There are performative acts, but what I actually work towards is that people find a kind of stance. This is me, closer, more clear understanding what they are standing for. Motivation or external pressures to more an internal reflection. So, of course, I mean, if you think it's actually conversation with yourself, in some sense, when you see you as a dialogue holder, the coach is actually some external person you use, some kind of a mirror or dialogue partner who somehow reflects slightly different than you are used to. But you always have somehow, if you reflect on things, if you talk about things, there's always an aspect in that you talk with another part of yourself. Ooh, I have a number of follow-up questions for this. I was just rereading some of my old stuff from Rogers. And then yeah. you are telling me it really resonates with the non-directive psychotherapy of Rogers or the Rogersian approach, reflecting and giving the other person a non-judgmental space or a non-judgmental reflection in which they can get correct feed, a correct assessment or reflection of themselves compared yeah. to the incorrect or false or even sometimes challenge reflection that they got in their past from parental yeah. figures, whatever. So 
How is it related by concept in your mind to the Rogerian approach? I mean, I'm very much in favor with the Rogerian understanding in general mm -hmm. because I think he really grasped something which is very essential for for these transformative dialogues. And I remember something I read from him in his early time when he was working as in a clinic at a time in the 50s, psychologists, not the most respective people, it were psychiatrists who were the respective people. And he had a client in a hospital where he, and this client uh, was very difficult, and he didn't want to talk to a psychologist. In the first place, Rogers was sitting together with this client, and this client refused to talk. And the only thing Rogers could do is talking and reflecting to the client what happened with him, Rogers. And it took, I mean, I don't know how many sessions, so it was a very difficult case, and he was staying in permanently in this place, the, the client. And I think they had several sessions uh, during one week, maybe two or three, and it took 14 days before the client started to talk. I think this says something about what it means. You have to earn credibility as a dialogue guide. I'm talking about a dialogue guide instead of a coach, because this broadens this also to other professional dialogues. Sometimes we have something coaching-like conversations, mm -hmm. but they are not clearly coaching one-to-one -one in one hour or something. So he really had to credibility, Rogers, in this case. And I think this is something which is very important, that we have to deserve to be a dialogue guide for another person. And this means to develop trust and integrity, show respect, and uh, generosity are very important concepts in that sense. One of my questions around this, and to follow up on the things that you just said, is that how do people know what to contract for? But how I see most people have performance goals. Most people have issues that they are struggling with. I mean, a not working relationship, a career move or something like that. How do these people become subjects to certain level coaching? How do these conversations turn out to be identity shaping things instead of just performance related conversations? How do these people become clients for third generation coaching instead of first or second generation coachings, which are their initial needs? It's an important question you raise. <laughs> I think it comes quite automatically. I mean, there is some actually some research that uh, people change their goals during the session. So they come with one idea and it moves on to something else. So what people in the first place think might not be the really the core of of the issue they are struggling with. And I think it's totally fair that they come with an idea and they just want to have a better life or whatever. It's also a goal, but it's very global or very broad. But I think if you come to, I mean, I, what I tell people is that I include myself a bit more in this reflective process so that I don't only ask questions. And this is something which I think is important for me to state that I not only ask questions, but I participate as a co-reflecting partner. 
And I think I give this second voice, which everybody has in his mind when thinking about things, that you talk to yourself, to another part of yourself. I'm the third party, and I reflect in that sense also to the issues at stake uh, for the moment. I think it comes quite automatically. What I try to, I mean, I work from an understanding the concept of intentionality has three levels. The lowest level, the mo most concrete level, is goal. The next level is purpose. And the highest level is meaning. And what is important, we have to relate the concept of meaning to some personal values. There we start to reflect on a much deeper level. And I talk actually about sustainable dialogues. And they are uh, this is quite a popular word in many senses. But here, I, uh, sustainability means actually that you don't have to go to a coach every second week for the next five years uh, because you always have new goals, new ideas you want to achieve. I hope to really free people from the dependency of going to a dialogue guide They are so far that they guided by their own value. And these are guiding staff for their personal and professional development. I think it comes quite natural. If you go to something which is much more existentially important, then people, you know, they think this is exciting. I never get the opportunity to talk about things like this. What is really me? What is really important? What is the driver for my uh, actions? So when people start to talk about a, maybe a career move, then I would, at some point, I would ask, so what is it really? What is your mission for you, relatedness and your relation to the world and to your job area? So if you really go f in depth with these perspectives, I talk about purpose and meaning. So higher perspectives of higher dimensions of this concept of intentionality, then you get to something which is where people get excited, where they suddenly can see, oh, now it's really very important that I reflect on uh, things like this. What is my mission? What are central values, guiding values for my work and for my way of living? I think this is very important. And then the dialogue becomes much more sustainable that people say, no, I've found the basic idea why I'm living on this planet here. Oh, my evil provocative question here is that how you find the boundary where this coaching would become an existential therapy? What is the thin line would just go over that way? And and we're just putting it here in brackets that, yes, you do have a background in psychotherapy. So you as an individual practitioner, I don't have any questions about your ethics because, yeah. wow, you are certified and whatever to do yeah. all the fields. But the practitioner who yeah. is inspired by the idea of coaching on the level of meanings yeah. and giving a bit more of themselves and inviting per deep personal reflection, how could they find the thin line what they shouldn't cross? 
what is the difference between uh, coaching and psychotherapy? And there are a lot of people who try to mark the distinction. Then some people say, yeah, coaching is much more future-oriented, much more forward-oriented, and therapy is much more go back into your biography and your personal history. But I mean, there are also psychotherapeutic approaches which would never go back to childhood and things like this. So this definition would be a failure. I had a longer uh, talk. I was once staying for several months in Sydney at the coaching psychology unit there mm -hmm. with Tony Grant and Michael Kavanagh. And uh, Michael Kavanagh, who is still uh, around there in, in Sydney, he is actually a clinical psychologist. And we had a talk about this. And he said, the difference between coaching and therapy is the background of the client. The clients are different, not what you are talking about. I mean, why not talk about existential issues in coaching? I mean, there is also a method or approach to coaching, which is called existential coaching. And I'm somehow inspired also by existential thinking. So I try really to balance between an existential, phenomenological, experiential-based uh, uh, understanding, and on the other hand, a more social constructionist understanding. Yeah. We create something together. We form new narratives in collaboration. In that sense, I'm really trying to unite some ideas which somehow are quite, in some sense, also a bit controversial. But I think it's important to have this existential perspective have it in, as a part of coaching because I think we are really struggling a lot in these times which we call the VUCA world or hyper, a time of hyper complexity or so there are a lot of different ways uh, sociologists have uh, described the time we are living in in that sense we need to find some kind of deeper existential stance from where we live and work and think in that sense, it's has growing attention also in society. I feel it in here in Denmark. I I really feel a closer attraction to these approaches. And for the last uh, 12, 13 years, I have actually a very special week course at the Copenhagen Summer University, which uh, tries to combine coaching, leadership, and the philosophy of Søren Kierkegaard. Mm. John Kierkegaard is, we decided that he is actually the first third generation coach in the world. This is mm. uh, about 200 years ago. So I, it's not me who <laughs> invented to be moderate. I mean, some ideas are based there so that we have to choose ourselves is uh, something what John uh, uh, Kierkegaard uh, says. And this choice will never end. So we cannot choose like, in the supermarket and choose something, but we and have to work on it permanently. So in that sense, there is always something to work on and we need the other to develop. And here, there's also another uh, idea which uh, comes in and maybe it's some similar background. It's the Korean-German uh, philosopher, Bujong Chulhan. And uh, mm -hmm. he has published recently quite a bit of his work is translated to English, to Stanford University Press, and he talks about the expulsion of the other. And this is actually something we are 
very much in danger. You read today. I read an article, just a debate article in the news, and uh, the other day I saw something in German TV that the climate of having discussions on the internet is getting more and more sharp. We hate uh, speech and, you know, we do not see the other as something, as a kind of inspiration. We think my way of seeing things is the only one. And this is even strengthened by algorithms. That's the idea of Bijong Chulhan, that we are in these bubbles. So if we are Trump fans, we are in this bubble of Trump fans, and then there are others who are not in this bubble, and they are in another bubble, but they never talk to each other mm -hmm. anymore. So it's only a self-fulfilling prophecy of your own talk, uh, which uh, goes into a circle, and you won't develop. And he said, uh, Han said, maybe there will be in the future a new profession, and this profession is called listener. <laughs> and the basic idea, and this goes back to somehow to Kierkegaard and to also to my understanding, I refer in that sense to several people, that we need otherness to develop. The voice of the coach or the dialogue guide is a voice which supports or introduces something different into the conversation, which is important for the development of my client. Thank you very much. And I, I really like that you brought in the philosophical background. What I like in what you are saying is it reflects on one of these homey fundamental questions of the boundaries between coach and coaching. How much can I put into the conversation as a coach from myself? I have arguments for it. So it's not just a statement that I say, oh, it would be good to have something more than only questions. Because the old school coaching is asking questions. I mean, that was the first definition I can remember was given by John Whitmore. It's more than asking, not instructing or educating people or teaching them, but it's also to ask questions. But there is more to it because we live in a world which has changed. I mean, coaching started in the 90s as a further development, as a kind of Trojan pause for psychology into the organizational world. So that was the beginning. At that time, it was good. The coach would ask a lot of questions to help the person, the coachee or the client, get new reflections. But I think how I describe the changes in our world, we need more We need more to really come forward to new ideas. In that sense, the co-reflecting partner. I reflect on, I talk about, I share gifts. Sometimes I reflect back that I get to learn something from my client, actually, about the understanding of something existentially important for me. And in other cases, I can gift to my client I'm impressed by something so that I really maybe put a, also a different perspective that the client maybe thought, oh, I'm just uh, really stupid. But my reflection might be totally different. So I give a present or a gift back to really give my perspective to things. This otherness 
which Han uh, mentioned, is actually quite important. And sometimes you even have to be somehow a bit provocative. It comes from the systemic approach. They talk about irreverence. So that you really say something and you try to push to the limits what is really acceptable as something new for the conversation which wouldn't offend or wouldn't really, well, my client would just go blank or black. I have to find these elements also that I push something into the conversation, which is somehow a bit provocative, maybe somehow under the surface uh, of the client, which the client tries to keep off. I once had a conversation and... uh... And somehow a similar picture came out. It was a, co- a specific coaching supervision of mine, and and I clearly remember that my that I had an issue about how much can I put into the conversation. And my supervisor told me that uh, I could imagine the my client as being a, a wide animal with a lot of potential caged, being in a cage. And he told me that it's not my job to open the cage, but it is. My job to shake the cage, provoke that animal, finally it will break free from the cage by itself. But I do need to shake the cage. And I I really love that picture. I really love your enthusiasm on how you speak about this topic. And I I really see the interconnectedness of the philosophy of even the current events in our lives, social media bubbles. And what is interesting for me is that with all the background in narrative psychology, Kierkegaard, phenomenology, how do you put these concepts or the concept of concepts of third generation coaching to research? What what are the tools or ways how you can examine such process? Is there a need yeah, to do I mean, research around this? I mean, of course, I do research. I have done quite a number of projects. Actually, all of them were group coaching. This has something to do with uh, that you include more people in it if you have one-to-one coaching. We had a large project a couple of years ago with uh, young boys uh, with a migrant background in the schools. I actually could attract 26 uh, coaches with a background like yours, for example, to be part of it. And we did, we had the coaching sessions of uh, 45 minutes about every fortnight for two years. The idea was actually to more, it's also a slightly different approach than this golden standard. We actually tried to have control group from another school but uh, it's very difficult i mean because there are so many elements in it uh, we had for example how to bring a line of thinking into 26 coaches who are somehow different of course we had conversations beforehand when we they worked actually voluntarily they didn't get any money we had some kind of interviews in the beginning to really have a some kind of common ideas and because i'm quite a well-known person denmark they knew also how i work they in that sense they also applied to be part of it because they (laughs) wanted to support my my idea and things like this but basically it was much more an action research project than a classical golden standard 
project, which would be the ones where you normally would talk about evidence-based. I'm actually somehow, I wrote about this in my book, a Guide to Third Generation Coaching. There's actually a chapter on this issue where I discuss evidence bases and where it comes from in the medical world. It's very critical. 30 years ago, nobody in psychology would talk about evidence base. This is a new threat. Yes. So it's also a political thing. It can be very restrictive. Uh, and I remember that in, in Germany, maybe 15 years ago, suddenly only three different kinds of uh, psychological approaches were accepted because they had this evidence base, which was maybe easier for cognitive coaching than if you work uh, based on Gestalt or uh, other uh, more fluid uh, approaches. Uh, which have no clear, uh, the same clear structure, but more a philosophical idea behind it. So in that sense, evidence is also a political concept, a specific discourse. And uh, Foucault, uh, the French philosopher, uh, the sociologist, has been, for example, very critical in regard to the specific discourses, which is also a way of imposing power so at that time in Germany, everybody suddenly did a cognitive behavioral uh, training, but they they returned to their clinic and they did uh, the same stuff and they always done. <laughs> but now they had the license <laughs> in cognitive behavioral coaching, which was the one except way of. This may sound stereotypical, but that sounds like Eastern European finesse for me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by Eastern European listeners. Yeah. <laughs> that is just something very personal from me. With that in mind, I do agree the, the different discourses, do, they do play a strong role in how they shape science and research and complete professions. What kind of investigations or research would you consider as useful or forward pointing in the case of, of Yeah, coaching? I mean, I think what is important to, to really wrap this up again, so I'm not against evidence-based. We have to meet some quality assurance, but we have to define evidence-based in a different way than they did in medical sciences. So we, mm -hmm. we cannot just copy something which doesn't fit to a different area. Now, and they even have to work evidence-based in pedagogy as a normative approach. I mean, there's something, a, a view of uh, what a human being is like uh, behind it. And uh, it's very different. Uh, at some point of time, there was maybe also behaviorism uh, part of, of uh, pedagogy, which is very different than if you work, let's say, from a Rudolf Steiner perspective, which is popular in Europe in some areas, which is totally different. You you can't compare these things and just evaluate them on the same level. So there's a normative understanding behind it. I think my idea is in that sense also to combine psychology with a more philosophical understanding, uh, also in the way I work in coaching psychology and uh, dialogue. Because there has been a tradition which goes back 2,500 years to Aristotle and, and Socrates. And uh, so why shouldn't we include these people in our understanding? We should definitely. I'm, a, yeah. I'm against blindly following any single direction, even in the case of research. So mm -hmm. just going for just for qualitative or for quantitative or, or for 
any whatever single direction I'm I'm against. I think that the bubble that I have already, yeah. you know, pierced in my life is that no single research direction is good in its own self. Yeah. yeah. What What is interesting for me is, do you have any ongoing projects or things that are interesting for you that you could share with us? Yeah. That you are working on from the research or development perspective. Yeah, I mean, now I actually work uh, a bit more theoretical. I'm going closer to the end of my career and I'm working on a book. I'm getting uh, 70 next year. Maybe I don't look like this, but uh, it's uh, (laughs) a truth. I'm actually working on a a book at the moment uh, on the future of coaching. It will be a Danish uh, book because this is something, a good testimonial for the somehow to wrap my career at the university i will not go and uh, just uh, do gardening in two years so i will continue but maybe i work will work more as a practitioner i gave actually a lecture at budapest last year the future of coaching and this really think this is very important to think about also and this will not be about uh, artificial intelligence and coaching Mm -hmm which will be somehow also in, be included in the future of coaching. I reflect a lot about this uh, currently. Maybe there will be chat uh, GDP in some kind of first-generation coaching. So there will be possibilities for sure. But I think it will never happen in third-generation coaching because, I mean, artificial intelligence has difficulties to really show emotions and uh, come with personal experiences so there will be anyway it has to be very clear uh, do i talk to a real person or uh, do i talk to a robot machine i think that for me that brings in the questions of trusting a machine eventually the the questions on on what constitutes a human at all that would be a a huge topic to discover but just Keeping all time limits in mind, will you share, if it is not a secret, a few thoughts on the future of coaching that you have in your mind? I still somehow, my idea of third generation coaching, which I see, and I try to argue uh, more for this, and uh, we actually talked quite a bit about uh, during our conversation now about there are really a lot of changes, and we are somehow trapped in really building up ourselves, our ego. So psychological issues become much more prevalent in society. Anxiety, depression, uh, burnout, stress. And we have to react on this. We have to, of course, there are structural conditions difficult to change, but there are some ways to do it also in conversations. And we have to include these conversations more in everyday life. This is something, you know, a lot of people think about coaching as something which is an organizational life. I think we have to include it much more in civil society. I know that there's, for example, here in Copenhagen at the university, there's student coaching. The universities struggle more to really keep up 
their performance. And it's important that in that sense, I think there's a really specific quality on group coaching because you see something, you can develop a kind of solidarity and common understanding about some issues that you are not alone with these questions you are struggling with. There are other people who are fighting this with a similar problem. This will be something I'm really work of trying to promote uh, that uh, dialogue should be part of uh, civil society, should be strengthened in specific groups. Here suddenly it pops up that we have, uh, you know, these conversation rooms that people just meet up, a community house, and they talk about some issues which are staged by a facilitator and then they they have a good talk about something which is important we have to develop what is called in sociology uh, social capital in organizations in neighborhoods i mean as i said we are so much challenged by these bubbles dialogue or not dialogue <laughs> the the posts uh, on social media where people just post something out which is not very appreciative in regard to accepting other people's uh, understanding of things we have you are to using a very soft words to describe the phenomenon we really have to, if we do not want to lose also our democratic society we really have to work on this we need to develop fora for community building and this is something I'm really striving for. And maybe this might be a kind of fourth generation coaching, where coaching goes into the civil society and really tries to help people to be in contact. And to we have here in Denmark, there's a woman, she is having coffee with people who wrote hateful mails to her. She was a former politician, and she's now really working on this uh, issue. And mm. I think this is something which is very brave and fantastic to do, so that you meet your enemies, if you could call this uh, like this. So people who write hateful things, and if you really come into contact with them, something can develop uh, in a new way. And I think this is something which is very important to develop a dialogical fora in civil society which opens up for something which is so important to keep our yeah, democratic societies. Thank you very much. I really appreciate is that although we haven't mentioned the word systemic approach, or I don't recall mentioning it, I think we really got to it, that you were thinking in the very large scale and I, as a coach, a, a practitioner and, and a thinker about coaching, I definitely agree with you that we have a, a tool or approach or a, a perspective in our hands which is capable of changing the world for the better, definitely. I'm just a huge fan of human cooperation. And uh, well, I think without that, we are doomed. So we definitely need to work on it. And coaching is, I think that's the best way or the best toolkit to help us in getting yeah. there. Thank you very much for all your insights and all your thoughts. I'm really grateful for you joining me in this conversation, Renard. Thank you very much for the possibilities to have these reflections together with you. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. 
I also invite you to visit zoltanchigesh.com where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.